Coming off the success of Final Fantasy VI, the development teams at Square all came together in order to throw out their best script pitches for the next installment in the series, Final Fantasy VII. One of these development teams threw out a script that was years in the making, incorporating science fiction dystopian elements, as well as their own fondness of the philosophies of Carl Jung, Frederick Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud. The script was deemed too dark and complicated for the Final Fantasy series, and rejected pretty quickly. But the developers fought and managed to gain permission to turn their script into its own standalone project, which would become Xenogears after a few years of development. Today, we're going to learn all about the story of Xenogears, its creators, and the games that it has spawned. We're joined by a very special guest, and we're going to talk about the game at length. Stick around and join us for today's ego-driven trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello, and welcome to the 128th, I'll never get over these increasing numbers, is the 128th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, so on and so forth. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Xenogears, originally released for the Sony PlayStation on February 11th, 1998. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who has split personalities. So, I'm honestly not sure who's joining us today. I mean, either way, I know him as my brother. He's Rob Casson. Rob... Am I talking to Rob today? Uh, I really couldn't tell you, Dave. Because, you know... <laughs> this personality just, doesn't know? You just Sometimes you just don't know. You're just one and all. Oh, well, you know what? I'm glad that you... I'm glad that you phrased it that way. That's actually really relevant to our topic today. And also joining us today is my brother from another mother. One of my favorite people in the whole world. One of my best friends, Adam Nelson. Adam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Only took I'm, 128 episodes. I, <laughs> I knew you were <laughs> going to do that. I knew it. I knew it. There are so many close friends I haven't invited. I knew Ooh. that was coming. I deserved it. I deserved it. All right. Well, I'm going to, you know what? First things first. Adam, every time, the first time we have someone on, I put them on the spot. What is your earliest gaming memory? Briefly. Oh, that's a, vivid, that's a vivid one. Uh, What's that? When I was five years old, so that'd be 1989, uh, my brother and I got a Sega Genesis from my uncle, and it came with Sonic the Hedgehog 2. So that was exciting. And uh, we set it up in our den, which happened to also be the guest room where my uncle was sleeping that night. And after everybody fell asleep, I snuck down to the room and pulled up Sonic the Hedgehog 2 and uh, got all the way to Silver Sonic. Oh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is, I think it's still my favorite in the series. Oh, it's fantastic. That was the best of the Sonics for sure. I go back to Sonic 1 and I'm, it's a little too slow for me. I know that's mm -hmm. weird, but it's a little too slow. 
And then I think as they went on, they just got overly complicated. Something about two was fantastic. I probably put more hours into Sonic and Knuckles, though. Sonic and Knuckles was good. I was going to say, have you heard, either of you heard anything about Sonic Frontiers? Only that it's not as good as Sonic 2. It's not as good as Sonic 2. That's the one that just came out, the open world Sonic. Yeah, Yeah, I actually, uh, Kiefer, who has been on the show with us a couple times, uh, Mm -hmm. he was playing it a little bit, and I actually watched him stream it some. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely a different type of Sonic game. I... I watched someone fight one of the early bosses, like a kaiju, like a giant robot. And like you're it's like Shadow of the Colossus. Like Sonic is like running up, running up the robot. And in the background, like the most badass shred metal is playing. I mean, like it's epic in a way that you don't expect Sonic to be epic. <laughs> so, yeah, man, it was it, honestly, I've um I've heard it covered on a few other podcasts I listened to. And so far, everyone has has had mixed feelings. But overall, mm-hmm. they've enjoyed the game. Um, it's just got a lot of fetch quests. And they like they go through periods where like, man, I really like this, but I'm tired of getting crap, you know, and then up and down, up and down, up and down. But generally good things about Sonic Frontiers. All right. Moving on. Rob, what are you playing? Well, Dave, this week has been a pretty light week in gaming again. So it's just... A uh, short amount of Rocket League and a lot of RuneScape. Adam, what have you been up to lately in gaming? Uh, been filling a lot of these moments in between uh, being a dad with roguelites. <laughs> um. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that. So No way. Um, but I've managed to find enough hours to string together to make it near the end of uh, God of War Ragnarok. Then. uh Oh, very was, much enjoying that one i was gonna say that's good i i haven't started ragnarok yet so, so uh, ragnarok. stupendous put it on a good speaker system turn it up and just enjoy awesome let's see what has my week been rocket league what else did, oh i played factorio this week so i think it was rocket league factorio i don't know if i played anything else but rob you're probably about to correct me aren't you uh, yeah, you definitely played some RuneScape, and I'll be shocked if you didn't play some Warzone, too. I don't know if I played Warzone at all this week. I don't recall p- picking it up at all. Wow. I, look, I I had intended to have a great gaming weekend, but I did not feel well, and I slept, but I needed that, so here we are. All right, well, Adam, I know where you stand on the matter, because our history and this game are kind of intertwined, <laughs> but Rob... Have you ever heard of Xenogears before? I have heard of it, have not played it myself. Uh, so my knowledge is limited to just that it exists. So you know that it's a <laughs> it's a game that exists, nothing else. Uh, isn't it part of the Xenoverse series? Uh, yes, it's, it's it's yes, exactly. Yeah, it's part of the Xeno series. That is correct. It's the so beginning. They... It's the beginning. Technically, well, it's go. episode five. Yeah, you're right. It's bizarre. It's <laughs> well, you know what? I we'll get into that. So, but let's let's go back all the way. So, a couple of months ago, back in December, I think it was, we did an episode on Final Fantasy, and in that episode, we learned all about Square's humble beginnings. Now, if you want to go and learn it in detail, go back to our website. You know, we've got old episodes at www.memorycardlane.com. 
But to sum it up, Square was a software subsidiary of an electrical company, and they decided to go into video game development, and they developed their first titles. They were successful and eventually grew into their own independent company. And the culmination of this was basically the release of Final Fantasy in 1987. It was a period of growth for the individuals who worked there, the company itself. It wasn't without its issues. You know, the first game that Square ever made, they actually had to cancel because no one thought to secure the license. It was a game based on another property. But the team worked through this early hiccup. And like I said, Final Fantasy came out in 1987. And this was just a period of a lot of success for Square. After Final Fantasy came out almost immediately, the team behind Final Fantasy started working on Final Fantasy 2. And Square as a company, with all this money and notoriety, began to consider that maybe there were other projects in the world that weren't Final Fantasy. That's a novel concept, huh? Nah. Nah, who wants to do that? Exactly. (laughs) Can't be diverse. And it was during this period of time that a lot of notable figures joined Square. Now, one of these new hires during the period was Tetsuya Takahashi. Now, Takahashi was only a few years into his development career. He had started a few years earlier working for a company called Nihon Falcom. Now, we've never really talked about Nihon before, but we will. What you need to know at this moment is that Nihon Falcom absolutely pioneered the action role-playing genre. Um, when they developed, they really laid the foundation for two series. One is really not well known in the United States. It's called the Dragon Slayer series. And the other is fairly decently known here, and that's the Ease series. They're currently working on the 10th entry in the Ease series. Um, slated to come out sometime this year. I think they brought it stateside about the fifth or sixth one, and then they've kind of slowly worked their way towards re-releasing the back catalog over here. So there is a, 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 I wouldn't say substantial, but there's a fan base for Ease games. And that's for those of you playing at home. It's YS. If you've ever seen that game and you have no idea how to pronounce it, it's Ease. That's that's it. That's the story, guys. <laughs> We're done for the day. <laughs> All right. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, cool. That Time to pack it up. Rocket League, anyone? Anyways, so Takahashi worked uh, first on Ease, the third Ease game in 1989 as an artist. His credit was listed as Monster Graphics. Personally, I want that title in my resume. And in 1989, he also worked on the first Dragon Slayer title, in which he was also credited as an artist. So as someone who had been working in the role-playing genre, as it began to grow, you know... The Enix was very successful in 1986 with Dragon Quest, and then Square knocked it out of the park the next year in 1987 with Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy II came out a year later in 1988. I mean, for role-playing fans and people that worked in that genre, this was a really exciting period. And when Final Fantasy came out, and Final Fantasy II came out, and Final Fantasy III came out, people were really wanting to join Square and be a part of what they were doing. So in 1990, that's exactly what Takahashi did. He joined the team at Squaresoft. 
So as he came in, the team was wrapping up Final Fantasy III. Uh, that was released in 1990. So Takahashi was first given a job with the team working on Final Fantasy IV. He was assigned to the art department. He was an artist who worked on the battle graphics. Now, Final Fantasy IV was another successful game for Square. I mean, Adam, do you remember the early Final Fantasies? The first Final Fantasy that I really had exposure to was honestly Final Fantasy VIII. Wow. You came in there at eight. That's awesome. I did. Well, they didn't start releasing in the U.S. until Final Fantasy V, I believe. and then Yeah, you got three that was two or one, and then they kind of trickled in there. They they did a little earlier. I mean, by, by here at this, we kind of had them, but you're not wrong, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the United States, you know, we sort of really were exposed to Squaresoft starting in 97, right? And then we just had probably five years of hit after hit after hit well yeah i mean we're we're discussing a game right in that period today so exactly yeah yeah, absolutely so basically all these games that came out in the early 90s through the nes and the snes era we'd be nes snes would have been 91 so now with final fantasy 4 we're in the snes era they were all just hit after hit after hit So in 1992, Takahashi was able to give his expertise to another project. He worked on the field graphics for the fourth entry in the Saga series, Romancing Saga, before holding down a similar position um, within the team that worked on Final Fantasy V. So, you know, he he took a break from Final Fantasy, and then he went over to Final Fantasy V. So 1994, after Final Fantasy V, he was promoted, and he became the graphic director for Final Fantasy VI. And in '95, he also found himself as the graphic director for Chrono Trigger, which we've talked about in a previous episode. I think it was 50? It was a long time ago. I think it sticks out in my mind, Rob, because that was like the golden episode. We were so surprised we got the 50, and now, now look at us. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 50 times, I don't know, Adam. What's the math? two point something well now you're at 128 you don't have to do that oh it is 128 hey that's a that's a that's a thing 64 bit 128 bit look at what we did today you're in power too nice so chrono trigger chrono trigger was an absolute hit i mean i know this is the chrono trigger episode but i want to ask adam adam chrono trigger did you know chrono trigger I came to Chrono Trigger late, um, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But solid game. Oh, amazing game. Yes. And, you know, and there's a through line to all these games that you're mentioning and why Squaresoft in the, you know, I feel like in throughout the whole 90s had this amazing winning formula. Well, they had they they had the they had the people for starters. Well, they had the people and they were the only ones out there at the time that were treating video games as a storytelling medium. That is true. I it, it is hard to find another game at the time yeah. that really did that. That's one of the main reasons why Final Fantasy took off and how they tried to set them. They literally started developing Final Fantasy. Like their mantra was, we want to be different from Dragon Quest. Mm-hmm. Like that was literally the <laughs> the basis of it. And I mean, a lot of that came from great story. I mean, let's be honest with you. That's that is why we all fell in love with these games i mean the final fantasy games they always had phenomenal stories 
Right. No one remembers Final Fantasy VII because the RTS strategy was deep. <laughs> they remember it because Sephiroth killed Aerith. Spoiler alert. I mean, I distinctly remember Final Fantasy VII because it blew my freaking mind. Like, the first time I loaded up that game and the cutscene, like, the mm-hmm. you know, you have the real-time cutscenes in that, and I was like, oh, like, full 3D. I was like, oh, my God. Did you ever play it back or, or, or ever look up, like, the very last cutscene of Final Fantasy VII and compare it to the very first one and see just how far they got during the development cycle? No, I don't think I have. That's oh. fascinating. I'll have to look that up sometime. Cloud looks completely different by the end of the game. That's really fascinating. <laughs> I will definitely have to look that up sometime. Yeah, I'm so. curious too now. <laughs> <laughs> so we come out of Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger 95, and since we're talking about Final Fantasy VII... This was about the time that the team was looking ahead off of Final Fantasy VI. I think I just said five. I meant six. Off of Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger. This is about the time that the team was looking ahead to the next exciting thing on the horizon, which was, of course, the Sony PlayStation and their first entry on the PlayStation, which is Final Fantasy VII. So the development teams all got together and they were allowed to submit their best pitches for Final Fantasy VII. Takahashi's well it was really interesting and we'll get to that in a moment but his pitch was not his pitch alone in fact in his time at Square he had gained a partner in more ways than you may think ooh la la ooh la la indeed so Soraya Saga joined the Square team as a graphic designer in the early 90s by answering an advertisement through ASCII Computer Magazine Rob do you know what ASCII's are? It's the code, it's you're taking binary to the keys on a keyboard. Yeah, essentially it's when we use like brackets and, and, and lines and everything to make art is what ASCII is. So, oh, wow. you know, when people draw giant ding-dongs on chat screens, that's ASCII art. That's what it amounts to nowadays. So <laughs> I'm not wrong. Am I wrong? I mean, oh no. No, no. I, neither of us technically no. are. No, you're right. I, just, Not- I took it more to an engineering bit than your art. Like- I mean, let's be honest. It's the only time I see ASCII's. Either someone posts a meme or, uh, I mean, a penis. It's one of the two. It, it, I, don't- I don't think there's an in-between anymore. Rob, you didn't grow up in AOL chat rooms, right? Uh, I may have perused them when I was young. <laughs> amazing ASCII art as far as the eye can see that's very true that's all we had back then absolutely in the early 90s Saga would have worked alongside Takahashi in the art department her first gig at Square she worked on Final Fantasy 5 as a map designer whereas Takahashi had a credit working on field graphics so they would have worked hand in hand there and they likely worked together on Final Fantasy VI, she is listed as a field graphic designer with a script credit as well, and he was the graphic director for the project. So they spent these couple of years working together. Now, at this point, their career split. Takahashi went on to Chrono Trigger, like we talked about, and Saga here, ironically enough, would go to work on romancing Saga as a graphic designer. But all that time they spent together, definitely Rob Ulala. It planted the seeds of something greater, and they married one another in 1995. Yeah, great year. Great year. Great year. Fantastic. 
it's the year they gave me an awesome brother, right? Yeah, there you go. There you go. You thought I was going to be an asshole with that one. You kind of still were. Yeah, I know. I didn't say you were the awesome brother. <laughs> what? I don't know. Who the hell was born in 95? <laughs> I, know, I have no clue. <laughs> so hair after Chrono Trigger, hair after Romancing Saga... The teams were looking forward, like I said, and submitting their ideas for the upcoming Final Fantasy VII. Of course, one of the teams that submitted a script was the husband and wife duel of Takahashi and Saga. Now, they wrote a story. It was years in the making. It was all these ideas that they had philosophically. And as they got together, they found that they had shared interests in all these categories. And so they eventually wrote a script where they put it all together. Now, the story was inspired by the philosophies of famous psychologists like Carl Jung, Frederick Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud. It basically was attempting to answer some of life's biggest questions, like, literally, where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? I mean, that's not light reading material. You know what I mean? No, I mean, sometimes you just gotta ask, where'd you come from and where do you go? (laughs) Adam, does that all sound familiar? (laughs) oh it sure does yeah Um, it definitely sounds on familiars you know all these philosophies coming together in one story sounds like a lot and it is a lot it is a lot now their script was rejected by their superiors it was deemed too dark and too complicated for a fantasy game but somebody saw something in what they had and they were given permission to flesh it out talk to people and develop it as a separate project under the working title project noah now the truth is they likely knew that the script wasn't going to work for a final fantasy game in fact in a later interview takahashi admitted that one of his main motivations behind writing this story was that he was growing frustrated with constantly working on a final fantasy series and he wanted to do something different in his mind This script was originally supposed to be a sequel for Chrono Trigger, and he initially heavily pushed it from this angle. The reality is they were only given the green light to work on Project Noah after fighting with their superiors and not being able to come to an agreement on this game as an entry in the Chrono series. Until they relented and said, okay, we'll do this as a standalone project, they were kind of stuck. But once they did, once they did, Project Noah was a go. They were, you know, taken off of the the Final Fantasy team, given their own thing, and and kind of moved on. I want to point out here, when they wrote this script, the game to them was a science fiction title. That's what they had stuck in their mind. And so there are many concepts in their script that really aren't suited for a fantasy world period. But the truth is, is that Square is Square. And fantasy is their bread and butter, right? Fair statement. Well, especially at this time in their history. I I know, right? Especially at this time. So their compromise, the compromise other than giving up Chrono Trigger, was that Project Noah would, would have to incorporate both fantasy and science fiction elements into the game. All those things came together and Project Noah was a go. Now the first step when any project is assemble a team. And if you go through the credits of Xenogears, there are a lot of other notable names when you look at the credits. Now, one of the big ones you're going to notice right off the bat is Final Fantasy Heavyweight Hironobu Sakaguchi. 
He's listed as an executive producer, but let's be honest, that's really a fancy way of listing someone's name on a game, right? Yeah. Sakaguchi was the man at the time, right? He was the man at the time. Yeah, I mean, he was the man. He was, I mean, he was a director at Square at the time. And I mean, he had the notoriety from the Final Fantasy series. You know, that was that was his thing. And so, yeah, I mean, he was definitely the man at the time. So he was executive producer on pretty much everything just to the merit of being like the 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 board director that basically helped this company through. I mean, there was there was a period when Square was worried about being bankrupt and and Final Fantasy is kind of the thing that was like, ding, 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 ding. So. Yeah, and you put his name on something and you're going to move units, right? Still, still, still 25. I mean, we're 25 years into this and still 30, 30, 30, 25. I don't know, Rob. What am I, 25? Yeah, okay. (laughs) You really get into the people when you work on a title, when you start delving into the names below executive producer. So for instance, the producer on Xenogaris was Hiromichi Tanaka. Now we talked about Tanaka in our Final Fantasies episode. He went to college with Hironobu Sakaguchi and they both dropped out pretty much together to join Square in the first place. So Tanaka has been around forever, worked on a bunch of Final Fantasy projects. Uh, eventually, oh God, I can't remember. What was his, his, we talked about where he went. He made a Final Fantasy. What was the first MMO Final Fantasy? Was it 11? Yes. Yes. So 11, if I'm not mistaken, was a financial failure for Square. He was in charge of it and ousted from the company. And that, that that's his thing. But here he was at Hot Stuff and, and working on this. The art director, Yasuyuki Hon, had worked with Takahashi on other projects. They worked together on Chrono Trigger. And the character designer was Kunihiko Tanaka. And Tanaka had been a character designer since the early 80s. In fact, he and Takahashi had worked together at Nihon Falcom on the first Dragon Slayer title, and Takahashi brought him over to Square to work on this project. Now, these were just a few of the 30 or so developers who worked on this pair, this title, who worked on Xenogears over a period of two years to make it happen. And if there's anything I can say about this development process, it's that it, in the and Adam, I, you mentioned this, we were kind of talking briefly about this the other day. I think a fair way to describe this is their eyes were bigger than their stomachs. They're certainly their wallets. Certainly their wallets. Yeah, that's true. Well, and their watches, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never played a game that has such a hard turn stylistically. Oh my god, I know. I know. And it's so cool, but not at the same time. It's not cool at all. I I, I, th- I think it's I always- neat. I always, on every playthrough, I always dragged my feet when I got to Solaris and I saw the end of disc one approaching because I didn't want to get to disc two. Because <laughs> the story doesn't get any worse, but the game <laughs> does. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> so needless to say, for us and for the developers, the game did not end up exactly how they envisioned it. And... In later interviews, it came out that this was mostly due to the inexperience of the entire development team. So you need to remember that this game comes out really early on in the lifespan of the PlayStation. PlayStation was 95. You know, they are developing mm. as the PlayStation came out. This was released in 98. So this is they're still learning how to use the PlayStation hardware. Let me make a counterpoint to that, though. Yeah. 
because a lot of the same people who you're saying were too inexperienced to finish making a game on the PlayStation were also responsible for the Xenosaga trilogy. And at the end, of, at the end of that, at the end of what are we talking a six or seven year development cycle for those three games, they got so over their heads that the last half of the last game had no voice acting. Okay, so maybe in the beginning they were inexperienced, but by the end they were just bad developers. Okay, they're just incompetent at finishing their stories. They're the they're, Neil they're, Steven, they're, they're the Neil Stevensons of game developers. They're just bad. yeah, it's absolutely true. Amazing absolutely writers, true. but they don't know how to write an ending. Well, look, also too, this is game five of of supposed six, and the only reason why we know that is from a what encyclopedia that they released after the fact. Something like that, yeah. Some perfect Xenosaga, perfect lore. world, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I know it's ridiculous. But here, Takahashi had originally wanted to create the entire game in 3D, but literally they couldn't figure out how to make that work with the hardware they were given. Mm-hmm. So what they decided on instead is that they, you know, the game's art style is 3D backgrounds with 2D sprites, and this limitation is also the reason for many of the game's anime cutscenes which are really cool amazing art i forgot how much i liked the games the cutscenes in the game i i forgot how unique the art style was too for the cutscenes mm-hmm. even the isometric style of the 2d sprites on the 3d backgrounds while you that you can rotate that yeah. was groundbreaking yeah it was Maybe so not cool a full 3d environment but it was it blew my mind it's funny that this team couldn't figure out 3D, whereas that's that was kind of the draw for Final Fantasy VII, and the teams are working in the same building and on these projects at the well, same time type deal, you know? Well, wait, no, Final Fantasy VII was sprites I, on a painted background. That's true, you, but you it also... You rotate the camera in, in Final Fantasy VII. Uh, I will give you that, but it's, I mean, one of the, the, fig, one of the things is the full 3D figures. That was one of the draws that they yes. they talked up you know and it's funny that they figured it out for that and we really couldn't figure it out for this but that's you know neither here nor there that's history you're right but i would wonder and i don't have an answer for this but even if you're on the overworld map in the original final fantasy 7 how many times does the playstation redraw cloud as you rotate the world <laughs> right is it more right. than eight times because yeah. if it's less than eight times then it's the same True. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's the same graphical clout as Xenogears. So the cutscenes actually came about. It's really fascinating. They couldn't figure out. So Gears. The Gears, just real briefly, Xeno is alien. That's a given. The Gears just came about because they liked the name. They had these large mechanized robots, humanoids. They're mechanized humanoids. Big, what do we call them now? What's the main series that uses um, an anime that uses big... Uh, humanoid mech- mechoids, Rob. Are you talking Gundam? Yeah, thank you. Gundam's yeah, a good one. Th- yeah, this Gundam. was contemporaneous to Escaflone. Yes. And so, Evangelion. And Evangelion oh, was yeah, the one. Yeah. Evangelion was the one that I was stuck in my mind, so yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't find that on my tongue. So yeah. So think giant mechs. So the character designer designed these yeah, no gears. Or... <laughs> no karate. The character designer joined these gears, and they couldn't figure out how to turn them into actual 3d models that was that was the beginning of where they realized that they couldn't figure out how to make this work and so that's kind of when they decided okay 2d sprites and a decision was made to basically 
all the scenes that they wanted to do with gears a lot of them for the most part they decided to turn them into anime cutscenes. so if you kind of go back and look you'll notice we're at moments when they really intended to show off the gears models like really show it off always a cutscene. but development never really got easier for them even after they figured these things out all right so this is what adam and i are talking about rob so this game is two discs okay Mm-hmm. And while this game is generally praised, one of the major complaints against it is that there isn't any gameplay on the second disc. Nope. Rob, have you ever played the second disc? Do you know what the second disc is? It's it's the bonus second half content. of the game. It's the second nope. half of the game. It's bonus it is content. not a game. <laughs> it's the second half of the game. <laughs> it's, it's it's the bonus content. Now, like they used to do DVDs. It's the epilogue. Let me let me level set this. <laughs> <laughs> oh good lord okay wait 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 okay. how many how many hours i for i'm you know what i should have looked this up how many hours of gameplay do you get off the first test do you remember yeah. so xenogears is a pretty typical 80 hour jrpg if you play yes. it through without dragging your feet like i always did roughly 70 hours of that takes place on disc one yes 10 hours is disc two give or take a little bit about eight hours of disc two is literally looking at the main character, Faye, sitting in a chair under a spotlight telling you the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best thing ever. Some of the other characters sit oh, in the chair too, but for God. the most part, it's Faye. <laughs> oh, man. I, wow. So, okay. I think there's I think there's maybe four or five playable dungeons in the yeah, second game like, and you literally no, or in the second nothing. disc you literally are dropped at the beginning you play through to the end and it's back to the narration in the chair. Yeah. <laughs> so, four years, four years. There was an assumption that this too is the way it is because of budget restraints. And that's really only partially the truth. In a later interview, Takahashi admitted that he simply tried to do too much. In fact, in the end, there was a lot of story and artwork, period, that the team created that they couldn't they couldn't figure out how to fit into the game. But instead of ending the game prematurely, prematurely at the end of the first disc, they decided on what they considered to be a compromise, <laughs> which was to put all this non-playable content on the second disc. And this was a compromise that was designed as a way for the team to finish the game within their time, budget, and and expertise. Let's be clear. They finished the story, not the game. Yeah. <laughs> You're so dead set on that. <laughs> there was a lot more game we could have played. There was a lot more game we could have played. I, and that's not an exaggeration. It yeah. is like... You get the second disc and you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to get some popcorn now and watch a movie for the next 10 hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I always got, a, a, that one always made me laugh. Well, and just the way the game flowed and the emotions that it took you on, uh, you know, from the time you set out into the desert to the time you're rescued by Bart and the crew of the Yggdrasil, I mean... That is an incredibly high adrenaline sequence where you're constantly being attacked and ambushed and escaping by the skin of your teeth. There's some amazing boss fights and you're never quite sure what the heroes are going to do next. And you're still only a few hours into the game. I mean, it plays 
really, really well. So it's such a gut punch when you get to this turn in the storytelling aesthetic and you're just watching a character sit in a chair and tell you what happens off screen. And this includes major character death. Like Uh, major antagonists are killed off screen. Yeah, yeah, yep, 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 yep. You 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 aren't actually a part of major plot points because yeah. of the way it's told. I want to jump more into that story, a little bit more into our own experiences with it. But before I do that, I, I want to take a moment and tell you one more interesting thing about the development process. At one point, there was a really good chance that we might not actually be sitting here today with something to talk about. So I found an article posted on IGN way back in September of 97 after the Tokyo Game Show. And it's titled, Tokyo Game Show, No Xenogears for the U.S. And it reads, Xenogears will not be coming to U.S. or Europe due to possibly sensitive religious issues, a Square spokesperson told PSX Power today at the Tokyo Game Show. The article goes on to explain that Judeo-Christian values mean little in Japan, where the population is primarily Buddhist and Shintoist, And despite America's keen interest in Square RPGs, the company had decided that they couldn't take the risk and release it abroad. Isn't that fascinating? Well, it makes perfect sense when you consider the content of the game. It does, and we'll cover that in a second. So that issue came up again when I was researching the localization of the game to English. Mm -hmm. In fact, this was one of the first Square games in which they worked with an actual English localization team in which the developers, rather, worked directly with the localization team to ensure the story was accurate. In fact, they worked with an electronic arts localization team to localize this over to to English. Now, one of the translators, uh, Richard Honeydew, I think is his name. Funny uh, name. Honeywood, I think. Honeywood. You're right. Richard Honeywood. It's just one of those that sticks out a little bit. Um, this <laughs> was one random of random the... thing to know, y'all. Like, I'm, I'm impressed with the both of you. Well, I mean, I just, I literally well, just did my research. You, yeah, but Adam, I mean, it's, that's really impressive. I don't have the wiki in front of me. He's oh, God, yeah, no. <laughs> See, so, I should be the smart it, tech kid here. Yeah, leave should. it all in, leave it all in. Yeah, you should. Yeah. Oh, we always leave it in, it's the best part. So, Honeywood said that he ended up with the project, first of all, only because it's a previously assigned translators had either quit or asked for reassignment due to the difficulty of the translation. Mm-hmm. And it was a particularly difficult task, he noted, because the game is full of numerous scientific concepts and philosophies. This difficulty actually ended up going both ways when it came to the, ca- the game. So towards the end of the game, spoiler alert, there's a concept in which you actually kind of kill God, so to speak. Not kind of. Yeah. Okay, yes, literally. Yes, you're right, fine, literally. <laughs> And the Japanese staff wanted to actually name the boss Yahweh, which is pretty oh. much the holy word for God in some pretty major religion religions. Yeah. And no. that and Richard Honeywood was like, hey, guys, uh, do you realize how dangerous doing that is going to be for you? And and he was able to talk them off the ledge. In the end, they ended up using the Latin word for God, which is Deus. The game got translated, released to English speakers as well. We got it 25 years ago this week on February 11th, 98, and it was brought to North America on October 20th of the same year. Yes, so now back to the game. Xenogears, of course, is a role-playing game, if you don't know. It's one of the greater ones, in my opinion, during the 90s Square era. 
Adam, you were talking about how they just nailed it out of the park for a bunch of games in there. Uh, I yeah. agree. I think Chrono Trigger personally is where that started. And then as they, they progressed into the, the PlayStation era, they, they couldn't do any wrong. Well, let's throw this out there. I, I don't know if you've put this timeline together yet on this show, but uh, 1997, Final Fantasy VII, Final mm-hmm. Fantasy Tactics, 98, Xenogears, 99, Front Mission 3, 2000, Vagrant Story. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't Parasite Eve in the middle there, too? Oh, probably. I'd forgotten about Parasite yeah, Eve. Yeah, everyone forgets about Parasite Eve, and that's yeah. another really fascinating one that came out in the same period. 98. So, yep. Yeah, they Good just they, they could not do any wrong in, in this period. The sheer amount of original IP coming out of Square at that point, right? It was, it, it was it was such a good period to be like a young gamer that had nothing but time to play video games. <laughs> I mean, that's the key. I'm sure there's some companies still putting this stuff out, but we don't have the time to, to focus like we used to. Not AAA. Um, definitely. No, yeah. Santa Monica AAA. Studios, maybe? Shout out God of War Ragnarok? That, that, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. So, really great 90s RPG. Um, like we said, 2D sprites on a 3D background. You traverse the world on foot and at, you know, either on foot or at times in these large mechs called gears. You fight in them too. Sometimes and both. Sometimes both. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Well, yeah. I mean, that's impressive. The year after Final Fantasy VII came out, and we thought that was such a gigantic game. Now here comes Xenogears and you have a cast of characters. I think there's eight playable characters in the game. Oh, Every I single know. one of them has a gear. That's 16 different combat styles. And the freaking, just the scope of the story. Unreal, I, right? And, and look, I, I, I mean, we can go into it, but just to kind of give everyone some of the craziness of this game. The story has, as we said, giant robots. There are split personalities. There are tons of people trying to overthrow tyrannical governments. People eating people like Soylent Green. <laughs> Literally called Soylent Green. In the Literally called Soylent Green. They they incorporate the story of Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. They try to be elusive, but I mean, you kind of have Adam and Eve in there too. Uh, I mean, literally the, the game, I mean, we already said it. It ends with you literally killing God. Well, and it starts with God becoming. Very true. Yeah, right. I forgot how cool that initial cutscene is. You will be as gods. You know that yeah. this this space station space station's going up and just on the screen. Rob, the the way the game starts is you're in a space station and um like the colony it, ship the colony ship and uh everything starts to go awry and as like things are starting to go around them just on the screen it repeatedly it's black screen with red text it just says. You will be as gods. You will be as gods, just flashing, and everything's just kind of going to shit around them. It's it's an it's a really great start, actually. So <laughs> I I forgot. I forgot. I honestly forgot because all I have stuck in my head is Faye. Like I like. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like I remembered that part of it, and then it and all that stuff. But I had forgotten that in the original cutscene. So when I put up the the review, and I was like, "What's this?" And I saw that flash of screen. I was like, oh, I remember now. (laughs) You could fill an entire episode just by listing the philosophical, religious, and sci-fi influences that inspired this game. 
well, the Christian Hebrew oh, Gnostic, yeah. you know, mythologies, um, like you said, philosophers, yep. you know, diving into the human condition, the, the thing should be a mishmashed mess. It is a mishmash mess. But it makes sense. It and does. It feels but it's like such it, a mess. But every every interaction, every conflict feels earned. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, you're right. And I mean there's a I, you know, there's a great build up. I didn't get through the entire game. I probably got through the first I'd say 6 hours or so, but that was enough for him to meet Ellie and mm-hmm. kind of see the basis of her background. You know, and then um, who's the next one? Graph. Is that the next one they meet? Art. Yeah. So, you know, kind of part of that. It, it, it is. It's just fantastic. And then slowly watching him and his personalities, like, it, you know, like it, how it starts to kind of in the anime cutscene starts to play a factor into it, you know, slowly watching that sneak up on him is pretty cool. So we were talking about all the things that came together. Of course, it, there's some obvious things, right? You know, Takahashi said that there was um, they took inspiration from dystopian films like Soylent Green, literally, because they put Soylent Green in the game mm-hmm. and THX 1138. And when they were making the game, you know, where we come from, what we are, where we're going, you know, they wanted to incorporate the psychology of Carl Jung, Freudian thought. It, it and Nietzsche's nihilism. I mean, literally, <laughs> Nietzsche's nihilism. God is dead, and at the end of the game, you literally kill God. How, how, like, how on point? How on point? <laughs> well, that may be what made this game so accessible and exciting to, you know. I mean, I was a teenager when I first came to it, and I was having these ideas which didn't have names yet, like nihilism and Jungianism. Yep. But it's like you see a game like this that takes these complex ideas that are half written in Latin and the other half is in German and translates them into melodrama that, you know, a 16 year old can understand. Very true. I always it always made me giggle that he kind of brought Freud, Freud and Jung together since they're, mm-hmm. you know, literally opposing schools of thought. <laughs> um, so I always really liked that. Now, I will tell you. I did not come across Xenogears here as a teenager in the 90s. You are here today because you are the one who introduced me to Xenogears. Absolutely. There is a part of me that is thankful on the other hand that I wasn't introduced to Xenogears until college because I feel like whereas you have the perspective that it helped you kind of shape these things you already knew were there, I guess is a good way to put it. Mm Mm-hmm. I already had this stuff for me. I recognized it for what it was like, like the moment that you see that phase alternate is id, or when it gets in there and you start to realize what's going on, like it makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, when you already have that background and the, the ego and, and I mean, uh, you know, there's almost some, it's almost like comical to me when like you get to the end and you're killing God. Cause you're like, Oh my God, I get it. I'm here for this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have that other perspective where I think that I think I'm very appreciative of it because I, I already had the background before I came into this game. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a game where you can look back on it, right? You know, it, it's got a very layered onion sort of approach to it where, 
the first time you play it through and it is about the melodrama and you can see the undercurrents of big ideas you know and then you beat it and you look back on it and you just want to play it again because you're going to get something different out of it because different ideas are going to come to the fore and right. it becomes it becomes less about the melodrama and more about the ideas that are undergirding the whole story very true so i have a few questions for you yeah we you you because i don't think i ever owned a copy of this game specifically Mm -hmm. you had multiple copies didn't you uh yes because they were because they were playstation games at the end of the playstation era you couldn't trust those discs (laughs) (laughs) got a point there dave no i mean i i distinctly remember it now you had already mentioned it but i also remember not wanting to turn the PlayStation off. It ran constantly in our dorm room. It did. That was my modded PlayStation. It was. I remember that. Yes. And the power button was dodgy, and we didn't know if it was ever going to turn back on again. (laughs) So we never turned it off. We never turned it off. And God bless that console. It did not burn out or fail once. (laughs) <laughs> no, it didn't. No, it survived that. Oh man, it survived a lot of good games. And mm-hmm. we had we had a good time back then. But yeah, I distinctly remember there being multiple copies of it, and I couldn't remember exactly. I couldn't remember it exactly, but I was like, I think we had more than one of those laying around for some reason. Oh yeah, well you know because you go into GameStop and you're like, holy crap, there it is. I want to buy it, so you buy it, and then you're like, oh man, but it doesn't have the. Uh, the instruction booklets then you go in again and there's another copy of it and it's only five bucks but it has the instruction booklet man isn't that just something that is so sad that it's gone like i don't know i cobbled together my first uh, copy of final fantasy 7 from like two or three different gamestop purchases uh, yeah but i i it, it, it sometimes <laughs> bums me out that like instruction manuals are mostly gone like art that comes with the like like it's digital mm-hmm. but let's be honest like When's the last time, legitimately, I can't answer this question. I don't think I've ever looked at the a art that was included with a like pre-order or a game like that came digitally through like Steam or something. I don't know if I've ever clicked on any of that to see what it was. Can can either of you say the same? Like, have you looked? I remember getting a digital art book with a game I pre-ordered on PlayStation 4, and I remember clicking through the art book, but I could not tell you what the game is anymore. See? <laughs> and I mean, that's still a practice that they do. There's still, like, still, like, extras with games. I haven't looked at any of them. Yeah. Rob, have you ever looked at any of them? I cannot think of a time I did, but thinking about it, a lot of the games that I pre-order feel like Battlefield or something, which, I mean, yeah, sure, you could have some cool digital art, but it's not, like graphically oh wow this is very pretty it's you know it's it's just another war game and xenogears was released in that like golden age of oh, the yeah. walkthrough yeah yeah the 100 with like prima games was working with the developers and you would get bits of the story in the guide that you wouldn't get in the game you wouldn't get in anywhere else it's yes. crazy man i thumbed through my final fantasy 9 walkthrough from prima games like a hundred times Tell me about Perfect World, because I didn't add that in here, but that's where a lot of the lore comes from, right? I it, I can't remember it. Did you ever own... You probably never owned it either, huh? No, no. But I but I know that, like, that's how we know that this is the, the lore. That's where most of the lore... I know for me, the lore of the series came from the internet, probably. 
And that's probably also where we found I found out that this was episode five of six. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I couldn't tell you anything around like the other episodes. I I nothing, honestly. Even even maybe dig it into perfect world I could, but just off the bat. Um, and even in the context of other stories, I couldn't tell you anything about the other episodes or, or like, I mean, they don't exist for starters. Let's be honest there. There were no other games created in this Xenogears. Yeah, no, there certainly weren't. But here we go. We have um, we have a timeline from, oh. a, from a screen capture on a okay. Flickr gallery. Here we oh, go. Oh, boy. You oh ready boy. for this one? Yeah, hit me with it. All right. Episode one, 15,000 years before the story of Xenogears. It's the era of interplanetary war. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The universe became the stage for the devastation caused by the winds of war. The Deus system, which appears in the story, was developed in this era. But besides this phenomenon, this episode remains shrouded in mystery. Oh, so the birth of God Ooh. is the episode one, huh? Right. The Deus system. Oh, yeah, we'll go with the data system, sure. Well, because it's a machine god, right? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mechanized, yeah, we create, yeah. You're right. Yeah, and it looks like episode two, which takes place 5,000 years later, is Cain uh, and Abel story. Okay. And that's where uh, the Ellie-Fay duality begins, which yeah. we haven't even talked about that. No, we haven't talked about them, them being reincarnations, basically, yeah. <laughs> which is... All right, episode three. Episode three is uh, 4,000 years before Xenogears. And this one actually kind of sounds, let's see. The stage for episode three is close to that of the real world. It was the time in advanced scientific culture. The level of human intelligence had attained its peak, but due to genetic damage, those unable to reproduce began to increase. So Isle of Man, using nanotechnology, Kim, Abel's reincarnated form, works toward finding a way to overcome this, but Miang's plot resulted in his complete failure. Ah, this one has a link to Emerelda, the nanomachine colony. <laughs> I'm learning stuff here on the fly, live. There you go. That's it's always the best part about doing this week in, week out, is getting to learn new things. So, <laughs> uh, Episode four was the Solaris War, which took place on this planet. This is... um. You know, this is actually referenced quite a bit in Xenogears. Yes, the Solaris War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the basis yeah. for a lot of it. What's six? What's Pat? This is five. So what's six listed as? Six actually doesn't have any details. Um, <laughs> that's just, right? that's, look, I mean, we've already talked about multiple times that these guys don't know how to finish a story. So that is just so on point. That is, <laughs> know, just, right? that is just so on point. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, man. Well, considering that episode five ends with God ascending to a higher plane of existence, and when they tried to retell the story, it ended with the universe being reset. Um, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> who? We really don't know. But, Rob, can I ask you a question at this point? You already did, Dave. Thank you. Uh, follow up. Follow up question <laughs> to the question of a question. Um <laughs> We've thrown a lot of things out there. I mean, not the story per se, but like bits of the story. What's your take on what you've heard? Uh, this is a very, very confusing game. It sounds like it's very complex and yeah. has a lot of uh, 
large themes to deal with at, at its highest point. But I guess, you know, I've, I've been actually casually watching a uh, speed run, which is 17 hours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I was not prepared for a 17 hour speed run. Oh my um, God. That's solid. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely interesting. Um, Do you get to see the opening cutscene, or is he cutting through cutscenes? No, I saw the opening cutscene. That thing is so uh, cool. Yeah, so it's it's definitely an incredible looking game, and um, you know I don't know that I'm at the, the, hearing the eighty hour playthrough of a game that for me doesn't have that nostalgia is a little scary. So I don't know if I'll play it myself, but watching the speed run and getting as much of it as I can, uh, I definitely think I warrants it because you guys are definitely talking this one up pretty well, and you know it definitely sounds pretty well done, with the exception of disc two. Well, no, Disc 2's story is remarkable. It's, and if they, yeah. if it was actually a story told through a game, it would have been a masterpiece. Yeah, just like the it's first. just, you know, we're, we're, we're running long, you know, so we'll probably not do reviews today. But if you, if you look at reviews, critic reviews, user reviews of this game, everyone criticizes the pacing because it's like Adam mentioned, you have all like 70 hours of a phenomenal RPG. One of the reviews literally said like, Hey, this would have been the best RPG of all time, but disc two. So it's the second best (laughs) RPG of all time. So, I mean, everyone, everyone hates the pacing because like you have all this great story with a really good battle system and a lot of ins and outs, and then it just stops, and you sit there for, I mean, it'd be one thing if it was, like, an hour on that second disc or something, but it's not an exaggeration. I mean, it's eight to ten hours of cutscenes, you mm-hmm. know? It just kind of ruins it for a lot of people. It ruins the pacing of it. It doesn't ruin the story, in my opinion. I I, I, I agree. I think the story's phenomenal and worth worth the payoff. But I definitely agree that I wish it, I wish it, I also wish it was a game. I think everyone wishes it was a game and not a movie at that point. You know, and it, it's definitely I can understand that, especially being that that was one of the huge t- turning points for me with um, I switching series altogether. The Pokemon Sun and Moon. I couldn't really get into those because I felt a lot of it was more cutscene based than the previous games that I had grown to love. And it just killed the pacing of it for me. I couldn't just fly through everything that I normally would and get to the final gym battle and be like, yeah, I'm the best in the world. Ha <laughs> yeah. just, it, it slowed it down. And I mean, you know, maybe the story can't be that advanced for Pokemon games, but I felt that I just didn't give it as much of a chance because of that. Although in this case, if the story is already drawn you in for 70, 80 hours, you kind of feel compelled to go for that last uh, eight to 10, don't you? And you will very much. So, all right. So let's talk about the aftermath of this game xenogears was a success for square it sold a decent amount of copies it was critically uh favored you know critics loved it um i think there were more than one publication that listed it as their favorite rpg of 1998 so i mean for all purposes xenogears was a success but i think then and more so now it's fair to say that final fantasy 7 was an even bigger success and so realistically, even though Xenogears was successful, all of the eyes, I mean, everyone's eyes were still on the Final Fantasy series. You know, I, I'm going to pause there for a second. Uh, one of the other podcasts I listened to did a famous first episodes and everyone, all the hosts got to bring like their favorite first to an important series. 
And one of the hosts argued that Final Fantasy VII was a famous first because it has in itself spawned a whole series of spinoffs and movies and everything. And there's so many, there's so much just specifically to the world of Final Fantasy VII that their whole argument was that it was a famous first in itself. I can 100% agree with that. You know? Yeah, it was, I've never thought of it that way. And when he said, I was like, you know what? You're right. I mean, there aren't a lot of, quote unquote sequels that have turned into worlds themselves you know this this was this is a problem final everyone everyone wanted final fantasy xeno xenogears could have been the most popular game in the world but everyone wanted final fantasy you know because it was it was the better it was i wouldn't say it's the better game but it was the, you know perceived that way to people and if you'll recall early on one of the reasons why takahashi proposed this script was because he wanted to do something different than final fantasy mm-hmm so after the production of Xenogears, with everybody going crazy over the Final Fantasy series, he quickly came to the conclusion that he would never get to make a sequel to the game, even though he really, really wanted to. I mean, if there's any if there's any evidence that this was supposed to be bigger than Xenogears, we just covered a six-episode timeline, per se, you know? So that being said, in October of 1999, he left Square... And he started his own, he started a new company, which is called Monolith Soft. And of course, his wife followed, um, as well as a few other developers. Um, there were a bunch of others who really felt creatively stifled by Square's focus, really at that point on the Final Fantasy series. So a bunch of people actually left. And so the legacy of Xenogears after, like, after Xenogears is really the story of Monolith Soft. Soft. Monolith soft now i think it's monolith software incorporated but everyone calls it monolith soft now i won't get into any of the game specifics because someday i would we, we might cover some of these as their own episodes but let's talk briefly about all the games that monolith soft ended up making now before i do that it's important to know that when it was first formed they were owned by namco and in 2007 they were bought out by nintendo that will that will come that'll make sense why i mentioned that in a second it should come as no surprise that their first project was Xenosaga Episode 1, which was released for the PlayStation 2 in 2002. Um, real briefly, because I do want to do an episode on this, we were excited for this game, weren't we? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember being geeked. 2002, like, that's about... We met in 2002, didn't we? Mm-hmm. We Yeah, we met in 2002. So I remember, I remember being geeked for this. I collectively being geeked for this, I think, or maybe we got into it the next year. I just remember, I remember being geeked for this. Well, I can't remember what came first, me sitting you down and playing Xenogears over the course of two weeks or us learning about Xenosaga. Yeah, I can't remember either. I was trying to think about it, but I just know that we were excited for, for this. So episode one actually became a trilogy. Um, in case you're wondering, Technically, Takahashi never made a sequel, quote unquote, to Xenogears. He would later say that Xenosaga follows the direction and style of Xenogears. But uh, now that we're under a different company, he said, we figured that we should start everything over from scratch. You know, there are familiar faces that serve as important characters in Xenosaga. Others are more like self-parodies. So we really don't want Xenogear fans to overreact. And then this is a, this is, he ended this, this quote ends in a really weird way. He, he closes it. He goes like in movies, 
you sometimes have the director or friend of the leading actor appear in cameos. It's kind of like that. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Well, it's like every Adam Sandler movie. I mean, come on. You know you're going to see the say you're going to see Rob Schneider. Yeah. You're you're going to see the guy with the crazy eye. I mean, you just you got you're going to see his wife. That's what it is. He's not wrong, Adam. No, he's not wrong at all. He's not wrong. That's actually a really good way to like like put that quote on on ground footing in in this context. He's not wrong. Yeah. And and no matter what he might want to say about you know, Xenosaga being its own thing with, you know, subtle callbacks to Xenogears, the way they write and develop games means that it cannot be disentangled from Xenogears. You know, the influences, the callbacks to religion and sci-fi tropes um, means that Xenosaga is always always going to be entangled with xeno gears well they've never come out i mean literally this is called the xeno series and they've never come out and said that they're not all part of the same series in one way shape or form even now when you have the xenoblade chronicles yeah you know i mean those are very different games but the way they're written and the way the world develops you know and it it, it still feels you can still feel the same intellect pushing the narrative along very true. You know, and that's the next thing I was going to say is that nowadays Monolith Soft is best known for the Xenoblade Chronicle series. We just got a third last year. Have you played any of them? I played a little bit of Xenoblade Chronicles 2. I believe I got about 20 hours into it. By the way, I have your thunder if you'd like it back. <laughs> I, <laughs> I certainly stole it there. We're good. We're good. Now, you can steal it any time. I haven't played any of them, and I have heard nothing but good things about them. It's They're, they're on my list. Mm-hmm. Now, for everyone that's trying to figure out how the games are connected, my suggestion is just don't. Just no. don't do it. Don't, don't, no. don't bother. Don't hurt yourself. Don't even try. You know, I think the better way to put it for me personally is that Xenosaga and Xenoblade are the spiritual successors of what they were trying to do in Xenogears. It's the same author trying to write the same story, but better each time. That's a really good way to put it, actually. That's a really good way to put it. I mean, the Xenoblade games, literally, like, they came out because they thought about, wouldn't it be cool if the world was God and you were you were living on God himself? Like, on that's, God's body. On God's body, yeah. <laughs> You know, and but how is that any different from the Deus system crashing to a planet and working to reconstitute itself by seeding the planet with life that it can then use as organic components to revitalizing its body? It, okay, Damn. well, when you put it that way, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, but it's true. He's he like he summed it up so well. He that is a perfect way to put it. It is literally tr- them trying to write the same story better each time. That is there. I honestly, I don't know if I've ever heard a putt better. That is a perfect <laughs> way to look at it. So, well, thank you. Um, that's fantastic. You know, so Monolith Soft has done, you know, the Xenosaga, then Xenoblade. But aside from the Xenosaga series, I want to say Xenosaga every time, but it's Xeno series. They've also they have a reputation for being a really great support team that helps other development other developers push through their times of need is a good way to put to say so if you go and you look at the the list of game credits for monolith soth 
you will see a whole list of really impressive games in which they provided quote unquote support for other studios. Super Smash Brothers Brawl, The Legend mm-hmm. of Zelda Skyward Sword, Animal Crossing New Leaf, Splatoon, Breath of the Wild, Animal Crossing New Horizons, and they're currently working on the newest Zelda game, Tears of the Kingdom. You also forgot their little dip back into the Final Fantasy world with Dirge of Cerberus. Dirge of Cerberus. I did. Yes, they did Dirge <laughs> of Cerberus. They did one. Didn't they do one more Final Fantasy game? I don't um, think just, so. Was it just Dirge of Cerberus? I thought there was one more in that, like that they went back to Final Fantasy. I could be wrong. So I don't have it in front of me it's right now. It's either you or Wikipedia is wrong. No, it's me. It's always <laughs> me. But I mean, let's be honest, like. So so this guy gets a job, right? Takahashi, he gets a job. You know, he starts working on, we don't know them, but Dragon Slayer and Ease are like, they're some pivotal gaming series. Like, mm-hmm. like, like they are the, they are literally the creation, the foundation of action role-playing games. And he takes that and he launches it into employment at Square, Square, Squaresoft. I can't get Squaresoft. I want to say Square Enix because that's what it is now, but it definitely wasn't Square Enix back then. Definitely Squaresoft back then. Um, it was Squaresoft. Squeeze and was barely a sparkle in her eye. And he worked on, he worked on, I mean, he was the director, graphics director on Chrono Trigger. Amazing, mm-hmm. you know. And then he came and he made this. Which weird... also was a story about a world devouring parasite. That's so true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just want to throw that out there. He doesn't get any script credit for that. He had nothing to do with that one. So maybe he didn't find like, him. Who knows? May- maybe he did. We don't know. <laughs> Couldn't find that. I didn't find that anywhere. And I we did the story on uh, on Chrono Trigger a long time ago. Um, but yeah, like the guy, you know, finds the lo- finds the love of his life. They're still together, mm-hmm. and they find that they have a love for all things weird and psychological and you know the concept of split personalities and your id and your ego and and you know all these judeo-christian beliefs and that you know uh nietzsche wants to literally declare that god is dead he's not killing god he declared god is dead people don't freak out on me um there's a difference between the two um and, and like th- so they make this convoluted story and he manages to spring that into what's now a really impressive bunch of credits like i mean they've worked on some of the biggest games like being able to work on like animal crossing and the legend of zelda games like that's an impressive resume at this point you know mm-hmm. all three splatoon games i know <laughs> it's 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 really it's it's honestly it's really impressive so quickly to sum up kind of what everyone did to his credit takahashi is still listed as the chairman cco president and director of monolith soth so i assume he's got his hands full his wife uh soraya saga i'm really not sure what she's up to these days her last credit was as a guest artist on xenoblade chronicles 2 in 2017 the art director on xenogears uh yasayuki hon was one of the developers. He was also one of the developers who left Square to come work at Monolith Soft. His last game credit I could find was also Xenoblade Chronicles 2. He's listed as having contributed to the artwork. However, he's probably too busy these days to do anything because he's listed as a board member of Monolith Soft. So they kind of have progressed into administrative stuff. And the character artist, uh, Kunahiko Tanaka, uh, his last credit, also Xenoblade Chronicles 2. He was a character designer. 
I don't know what it was about Xenoblade Chronicles 2, but at the moment, it feels like this group's last hurrah. Well, the game is so big, it kind of feels like that. <laughs> uh, Tanaka is also a manga artist, so maybe he's he, he hasn't done anything since also 2017, I think, but maybe he's busy actually doing doing um, arts and everything else. Now, as for the game itself, as for the game itself, you know, we like to talk about games, Adam, like where does it fit within the pantheon or context of gaming history? I don't know if this one does, to be honest with you. I don't. I want to like it. I love it. I think it's a great RPG, but I don't know, like, this is the way I like to think about it, right? If you were to pluck this out of existence, how would where we're at now change? You get what I'm saying? Right. And I don't know if it would at all. I don't, I don't, I don't think it gave anything... I, I mean, I hate to say that because I want to give credit, always give credit where credit's due. It makes for some really fascinating conversation, obviously, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it has any importance beyond that. Truthfully, uh, aside from maybe springboarding, springboarding the career of Takahashi, which gave us the Xenoblade Chronicles, and I think that the notoriety of the Xenoblade Chronicles have surpassed Xenogears personally. Oh, no doubt. Um, I would tend to agree with that. You know, the impact, the influence of Xenogears to me personally. It's great. You know, not only as just a gamer, but, you know, the way I think, and maybe this is embarrassing to say, but no, this is a video game that influenced and formed the way that I think. As a person. Uh, absolutely. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's influence on my life. Extreme. Its influence on video gaming as a whole, even if you look at the subgenre of JRPGs, probably minimal. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't think. I, I mean, but if you're a fan of those golden age JRPGs oh, from the nineties, hundred percent, find yourself a copy. Yeah, it's a super interesting playthrough. It is, it is so worth the ride. Like, it is one of those just old school, epic, sprawling, the world is coming, I mean, the world's literally coming to an end. But it's full of such compelling characters. It is. Like, every Everyone. No, you're yeah. absolutely right. You're 100% right. Like, so. I don't know about you, but my favorite part of that game, and this is going to sound so weird, it's the prison sequence. Why? Because it's this moment, it's probably 20 hours in or so 18 to 20 hours in and it's this moment where everything stops rushing headlong towards some unknown goal and you and another character are just trapped in this prison it's probably a two or three hour sequence it's long it's very long for a prison sequence um, and you just slow down and you get to explore these characters and that's something that not a lot of games from this era were doing no no, and it was good character building. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's if 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 you revisit my love of RPGs in this era, like when we talked about Final Fantasy VII, like those were always my favorite things. Is that they did such a fan in, in this game, this game specifically, they did such a fantastic job of world building and character building that mm -hmm. you got so invested in the characters, not just the characters, but the world around them. I mean, it just, it, it made you invest in everything you were, you were in, you were in, 
And can we talk about the music before we sign off? Oh my god, Chrono Trigger. I'm so sorry, I forgot to bring that up. The (laughs) same guy who did Chrono Trigger did did Xenogears. Oh, and like the... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm gonna let you. Go ahead. So, okay. Very vivid memory of the first playthrough of this game. There's a moment, um, probably about midway through the first disc, so we're talking 30, 40 hours into the game. You talk... You walk into the Church of Ethos for the first time, and the Ethos theme plays, and it is the most, like introspective mm-hmm. riff on yeah. like a catholic hymn yep it's it's crazy i just i remember the first time i played through that game i was in in my basement of my childhood home i stopped i put down the controller and i just let that music play on loop for a while yeah it is i that was one of the things i made a note of as i was watching the playthrough like i forgot just how bang up the soundtrack is like yeah it is it's phenomenal and then when i went back and looked i was like oh yeah the guy who did chrono trigger music which rob when you and i did that episode we talked about how fantastic we you know we love the music of chrono trigger and this is just good too this is great if you don't do anything rob go listen to the music from this i got a soundtrack uh, somewhere (laughs) although you said you're watching a playthrough so you're i'm sure you're getting some of it He's watching uh, a speed run. They're not luxuriating well, in the music. Well, he'll, he'll slow down and watch some. We <laughs> look, you know, the, the the downside to doing this on such a on a weekly frequency is as much as we want to play everything, we we don't get to more often than not. But we always try to watch walkthroughs while we're doing other things. Like I'll watch them as I'm doing research or writing the episodes. You know, mm-hmm. um, and we always just get the get a, a basis in it. But yeah, I, I I'm with you. I got to that part and I was like. I, for, I just forgot how good I forgot how good it was. So I mean, you, can think, was. you can think through that game and you can do this with any good game, but you can think through to like some of the set pieces, some of the location reveals, just some of those moments. And Xenogears just has those in spades. The battle on the Thames, you know, um, you know, the whole chase across the desert. So I mentioned that one before, um, you know, the, the, the attack on Solaris. My God, there's just so many good set pieces in a game that came out in 1997. I know. Eight, sorry. Eight. Eight. It was being developed in seven. No, you're right. 98. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's great. Honestly, that's, that's, I I don't, I mean, we've gushed over it now for 80 plus minutes. So, I mean, it's, it's, this one was, this one was fantastic. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm thankful for a lot of things in our relationship. You know, you're, you're honestly my best friend so um but i'm thankful for a lot of the games you introduced me to and this is definitely on the top of that list so um, oh you're very welcome the feeling's mutual and and this is great so can i make a uh, can i make a request yes when you guys get around to vagrant story invite me back yeah i you know i didn't even re- i was I, I every time we do episodes and i you know someone mentions a game or i'm like man I want to do something on that nowadays. I write them on a list. And then at the beginning, like the end of every year, I'm like, okay, what am I going to add to this year's list? Oh man. Well, we'll have to find, we'll have to find other stuff that you want to visit too. So because we've done a lot of episodes, haven't we Rob? Indeed we have 128 of them. 128 and counting Rob. If someone wants to check out our whole now expansive library of episodes where can they do so 
Well, Dave, that can be done over on www.memorycardlane.com, where you can also find pictures and bios of Dave and I. You can find calendar with upcoming episodes and maybe provide some input on them. You can find links to our Patreon, our Discord, and our social medias, such as Rob, who is on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z, and Dave? I can be found on various platforms as nowadays as David is wrong. Adam, I don't think you do anything gaming online, do you? You're a dad nowadays. Yeah, I'm a dad. Um, you know what? That's, that's, no, no one can take that away from you, man. Don't say that so defeated. You're a dad. Oh, do you know I how fucking awesome that is? Man. <laughs> you I know, you to... should start a Twitch channel and call it Dadum. I'm dad Dadum. Oh my <laughs> God. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. All right. Guys, this was awesome. Uh, you know what? It's been great having you. You're you're not, you're almost done. You're real close. Oh, real, real close. Is a closing thing. We're, you're real close. Each week, ladies and gentlemen, we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week, we talked about Xenogears. As part of telling you these stories every week, one of one of the best parts about getting to do this week in, week out, is that we learn things. You know, when you teach, you learn. It's my favorite part. As part of our commitment and our recognition of this process, each week we like to go round table and talk about what we might have learned or our biggest takeaway uh, from today's episode. So, Adam, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but I'm going to start with you. Did you learn anything new today? Oh, I absolutely did. What, um, was your, what was your biggest takeaway? What did you learn today? So I had no idea that, you know, it was a husband and wife team and that there was this great romance behind one of right? my favorite and most influential video game franchises. So I think that's amazing. And now, like, and and I admittedly, so I'll just preempt before I get to Rob. I'm sorry. Uh, that was my thing, too. And I can kind of see how that played. <laughs> Once again, here's your thunder. Would you like it back? <laughs> We do this to each other all the time. It's okay. You're allowed to be in the mix. No, I think that's really cool. You don't hear about, one, you don't hear about women developing games that often, especially not in the mid-90s, especially not in Japan. Um, you so know I think what? That's that, those, are all, those are all very true statements. I was, about, I, was, I was really about to make a few corrections, and then you kept layering on, especially not here, especially not Japan. I was like... Okay, well, he won on that one. I can't, I can't <laughs> refute that because we. I mean, we've talked about women developers before. Like you know, in the uh, this period, you had in PC World, you had Roberta Williams, mm-hmm. you know, winning the world over with the adventure games. But you're right, there weren't a lot of them at all. So, and certainly not in the AAA world, and certainly not in Jap. You're right. I mean, there really aren't a lot of Japanese developers. So, yeah, Rob, what did you learn today? Both of y'all decided to steal my thunder. Dude, take it. If that's, that's, a, that's a really cool part of it. I mean, you kind of learned the whole thing, though, didn't you? I mean, it was definitely between that, because, again, you don't really hear about female developers. You don't really hear the love stories behind these developments. Uh, but the other side of it is that there's, because I don't really know the game or the series that well, um, that there's so many philosophical and religious ideals behind it. I mean, down to the fact that it was called Project Noah, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah. Project yeah. Noah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, this game, this game is, I, I there may or may not be an arc on this too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, 
Oh, oy vey. I mean, this is just, uh, like, I, we could probably spend, uh, like, this entire time on talking about any facet of the story. It is just so big and expansive and and uh, encompassing, and it's just, it. it's something that I genuinely think you need to experience for yourself. I, I, I go play it, you know? I, I say that about a lot of games, although we haven't lately, have we? I don't I th- think so. I think lately we've been kind of like, eh, it's historically important, but I, I, I don't think I would play it again, type deal. But this one, yeah, go play it. I, I think that um, even like the anime cutscenes, the art style hasn't aged. Like it's still fresh. I like the anime cutscenes. Actually, I think they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think they. I think that it's still relevant. I think it's still relevant. That's the point. I, so I recently, like within the last six months, fired up Xenogears on a PlayStation One on a sixty-five inch plasma, and it still looks great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think you could go wrong with this one. Just, um, I don't know. Do whatever you have to do to open your mind. If you're in Michigan with you guys, you have a lot more options for that than us here in Louisiana. So. Uh, you know, sit down with an open mind and get ready for a wild ride. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. All right. Well, it's about that time. Uh, before I look ahead to next week, though, um, everyone gets one last moment to add. So Adam, anything you'd like to add to today's episode? This was really fun. I hope I get it to was. do it again sometime. It was. It was a lot of fun. I um, I really enjoyed having you. I also quite enjoy this because this is the uh, longest time that I've talked to an adult outside of work or my wife in a long time. You know, to be fair, though, that's kind of why we like doing this. Like, this is our chance to, like, sit down and talk separately from, I mean, all the other stuff going on in our life, too. You know, we we have this time carved out every week, and it's kind of great. So, that's cool. uh, at, At least I think so. I don't. Rob could. I know he just sits there and like plays RuneScape the whole time. So like, I think he just shows up. Um, but I'm appreciative that he continues to do so 128 episodes later. So. Yeah. Ooh, and I have a homework assignment for you, Dave. What's that? I want to see your quad chart of uh, games that are important versus games that you play again. Oh, man, that's a toughie. I'll have to I actually might sit down and do that. That's a really tough one. Um, <laughs> hey, I mean, look, but though for a period, though, this was like a regular playthrough for you, wasn't it? Like a oh, yearly yeah. type thing? Absolutely. Uh, between yeah. this this and Vagrant Story, um, those were the games I would always come back to. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I, I have a few of those, too. Rob, uh, what would you like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take a quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone out there who listens to us. It means the world to us, even if sometimes you don't think it does. And with that, I also want to wish a very special thank you to Adam for joining us. It's been a pleasure catching up with you. And, you know, it's great having you on this episode and having someone who's more well-versed and can chat with Dave and pick his brain instead of me. (laughs) So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. Awesome. Yeah, Adam, thank you. This has been a ton of fun. So, Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, next week, we'll be all learning about Lemmings, a puzzle strategy game released for the Amiga on Valentine's Day of 1991. 
As part of its story, we'll revisit the early history of its developer, DMA Design, and we'll learn all about the idea of where the game Lemmings comes from. So stick around and join us next week as we play Follow the Leader on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Skip up, button, up, boom, boom.